success we are on welcome back for season two of the from meth to success podcast a podcast where we discover explore and unpick people's from meth to success stories i'm your host justin founder of from meth to success coaching author of your hide your hide and i'm on a mission to share stories from people who have moved from their version of success from their version of mess, transforming their lives along the way. And today we are joined by someone close to my heart, Kerry Manet Davis, founder of It's Never You Charity. Kerry set up the charity in memory of his late son, Hugh, who sadly passed away aged seven years old following a battle with a rare form of cancer in September 2021. Kerry, welcome to the show. How are you, mate? I'm good. Thank you for being. I'm looking forward to being on here and speaking. And uh, like I said, we've had a few chats beforehand, and uh, I'd love the opportunity to share my story with yourself on here. Brilliant, mate. Good stuff. Yeah, really good to see you. And I think um, for the context of of the listener, um, just to sort of outline everything, we've known each other for a few months, and I've been following your journey. And I just I just wanted to use this platform, use this podcast for you to tell your story, um, because obviously you know it's pow- it's a powerful story, but because I believe that also it will serve as a message to to everyone that listens. And and for me, you know, those messages are that you, you know, you can always after the dark see the light. Um, You can always transform your life and give back from, you know, unfathomable and sort of unthinkable situations. And, you know, some of that is really the premise, the premise of the podcast, mate. So, um, you know, that's kind of where what my thought process was. And, you know, it feels to me that kind of this is really what you're doing, right? Through the charity work, it's and um, through what you've set out to do, really, is is this sort of this this raise awareness, but also to give back. Yeah, definitely. So, um, to touch on the charity, um, we called it "It's Never You." Uh, yeah. The first words my wife spoke to me when she was diagnosed in October 2021. You always think it's someone else. It's never you. And that um, resonated for us throughout the whole of his 10-month treatment. Um, and when we went through it all, we just felt like we always, unfortunately, charities are formed because people see a need to do something or need to change something. And also in memory of someone that fought something so hard. So we wanted to do something. We were going to do something. If Even if you survived, we were going to give something to charities or his hospital that he did. He was at. And we decided to do something in his memory after he passed away. And what I found in my journey is that giving back is something that helps you go forward. And when something happens to you, you find that when you put yourself in someone else's shoes, which you've been in those shoes, you can gain a little from helping other people that from your experiences. And so that's what we've done. It's, it's been a massive help for me during grief. Uh, to get me through it. It's given me a focus and a challenge. And uh, every day I wake up with a purpose to do something, to make a change, to make a difference to something that I experienced. And also just also with the memory of my little boy in the back of my head just saying, keep going. So that's why we did it, my wife and I. And we're growing. 
every day something new is coming on. We're building, as you've seen on our social media. Um, we're in a position now where we're recognised nationally. So, yeah, and happy to share the story of it. Yeah, and that's you know this this yeah this this giving back concept is is I think you know although I think it's one of the most powerful things you can do in the world. Um, it's something. It's almost like something depending on what you've been through is how much you give back. You know, obviously, I've not been in any situation. I obviously don't understand the, the, what what you've been through. I can't comprehend it. But you know, as a coach, I'm sort of giving back through an experience in, in in my way. And I think other people do it in in different ways, right? But everyone I seem to have on the podcast, it's it's about them giving back in in their way. So. You know, and obviously, from what I can see from the from the charity is 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 that it, it's completely focused on on on, on this giving back, and, and that's where the power lies. And when we talk about giving back, what is that kind of? You know, obviously, there's there's financial elements to their charities and that, but what is it mostly given back to? Is it parents that are going through something similar, or or? or, or so, I mean. To, to summarise, really, I could have escaped and done nothing and left the childhood cancer world when Hugh passed away. Yeah. Um, to this day now, a half of me wants to leave that world, but I feel like because I experienced it firsthand, I went through the rough side of it all and come out the rough side of it, and I'm still standing, and my wife and I are still standing with it. We're strong together. We're family unit still strong. I thought, well, let's use our power, our strength that we have um, between us to put back and help these parents that are going through it. And yeah. during it, we were fortunate financially that we were okay through the treatment, but we saw and experienced parents that weren't okay through the treatment. On one occasion, I remember uh, a lady coming in. Uh, I believe she was a single parent at the time, just from the conversations I had with her, but she had three young children. She had an 11-year-old that was receiving treatment for relapsed leukemia in the bed opposite me. Plus, she had also a young child of her that she was looking after, and she had another child at home. And I remember her having to get a bus with her younger child to pick up her other child at home and left the 11-year-old in the bed to receive chemotherapy. And she couldn't afford to feed him at that time. And I just thought, you know what, this is like so wrong on so many levels because this child has just sat there on his own and I just thought what's going through his mind what must be going through the mum's mind she's got to do all this and the added stress of it all and who's actually looking after her and so I actually ended up buying her a pizza or a child a pizza and I um, gave her some money to get a taxi home because I just felt like, like if I can help in that sense there and also going through the whole process of the chemotherapy with Hugh and the cancer treatment uh, it just, I can't describe, if in any way I can um, put sort of an analogy towards it, it's like a marathon. Uh, like the first words they tell you, this is not a sprint, this is a marathon, this is going to be a yeah. long time treatment. But it's draining, it's everything along the way. If you, all you want in the first instance is a plan, a diagnosis. Is it a plan? Is there a plan? That's all I was asking the doctors and nurses. Look, has he got a plan? Right, he's got a plan. There's a chance they're going to treat him. That was the first yeah. thing I asked. Yeah. It's okay, we'll deal with that. We're going to stick to the plan. The next thing you're just going, you've got to wait for the scans. You've got to wait for the blood result. And it's like 
constant. Every day there's something approaching you that you have to face. You can't relax. It's relentless. You're always checking. As I said to you before, we're always, we were checking temperatures three times a day, 38 degrees yeah. and over. We're into hospital immediately. Um, start and, and at that point, I could have been working or my wife could have been doing something. And I mean, many a time I've been pulled from work or even the one time I was on the golf course and say, Kerry, you've got to come home. Uh, Hugh's got a temperature. We've got to take him to hospital because there's a chance of sepsis if you don't get in quick enough. That's all right. So we'd be taking him in. And then, then when you're in, you're in there for three days minimum because they start antibiotics straight away. So you can't plan with your life. You don't know where you're going, where you're coming. And it's a toll on your mental and also a toll on you physically because you've never got a chance to recover uh, with sleep and things. And then um, with that, with the financial side of it, that, there is nothing available for parents. And the government, as you know, I've been chasing the government on packages for parents. One of the big things that we we wanted to pursue was the fact that we believe there's a discrimination between a mother and a father bringing a child into the world against a mother and a child losing a ch- mother and a father losing a child. There's packages of workers' rights in place for a mother and father uh, to look after their child once born with maternity and paternity rights they can get job security they get a standardized payment package but god forbid your child is put on palliative care which can be six five four seven months no one knows it's just a a treatment center before they die well in that case there's nothing from the government and you think in your head well what's the most simplest form to help someone during a really traumatic time well let's make sure that they're not going to worry about money and they can yeah. keep their house and they can keep their job but as we found and recently I, we put up a letter that we received back it was just the palm off to say well, well yeah. they can claim unfair dismissal if they get sacked well if we're looking at how to solve a mental health crisis in this country let's go back to the root what caused mental health problems anxiety about things that you can control yeah. You can control your work if you can. You've got to speak to somebody. Things that you can't control, that's where anxiety should come from or does come from. Yeah. So we're trying to push for that, better workers' rights and better families um, financially. And also the other side of it is there's this 100-day wait for mental health services in the NHS on average, and that includes grief. And when, um, sadly, Hugh passed away, um, and obviously the, the two weeks leading up to it, he just had his sixth birthday on the 30th of August, and 18 days later he was... Uh, passed away, I reached out on the 1st of September to several charities in the NHS to try and get some grief support. And I phoned them up and I said, look, I need some help. We had to send an email in and things like that. And they said, unfortunately, um, you have to wait three months. And at that point, I had my wife at home. I had my youngest son, Rafe, at home. I had all my family. I had my wife's family. I had Hugh's friends and family. And and being the dad, you try and take control of it for your, to help everyone else to take the burden off things. Yeah. So I reached out to him. I said, Look, I need some help desperately. I've got, um, and I'll be open. I struggle with PTSD because, yeah. I've, as you would imagine, yeah. I've seen and heard things that you shouldn't see your son go through or child go through, which I'm in control of now through help. And I needed some help desperately. And I ended up thinking, you know what? Am I better off just phoning Samaritans up, going to a bridge and just saying that I'm going to jump off yeah. it? Can yeah. someone help me? Yeah. Because there was none available. And then I refer to a GP and they offered me sleeping pills, which I was like, actually, do you know what? I sleep okay. I need yeah. to change the flashing reel in my head of all the bad images that I have. Yeah. So I reached out and I got some help <coughs> Excuse me, from counselling, which has really sorted me out. And I just thought, do you know what? There needs to be something in place for parents where they don't need to search for it. 
They can just find it and it's readily yeah. available. And as you know, with support groups as well, the most successful things that we go through in the world where we do weight loss, we lose alcohol, um, we lose addiction to drugs. We do it in support groups. So yeah. weight loss, Weight Watchers, Slimming World, Alcoholics Anonymous, yeah. it's all with peers go through the same thing. So we thought as well, and I know this firsthand, that when you go through this treatment, you can't go on Facebook because your first world problem is your child with the bald head throwing up in bed. Yeah. And someone's first world problem is their child putting spaghetti all over their face at a dinner table. Yeah, yeah. So you're, you're, yeah. you're two parallel worlds that are completely different. You're worried about your child surviving till tomorrow, and they're worried about cleaning their table up. And I yeah. thought, you know, I can't, I can't deal with this. So I turned it off, turned Facebook off, turned Instagram off, and you're, you're listening to LBC on the way up, and everyone's got their relative problems, but you're listening to someone who said they can't see their boyfriend during COVID. I'm yeah. like, wow. Yeah. You know, like, I'm going, I can't see my son who's got oxygen mask on in hospital. I thought yeah. I'd turn it off. And also, you can't go on Google and search what your child's got condition-wise because you could type in the world is flat in Google and you get 25,000 pages to you the world is yeah. flat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if you type in your son or daughter's condition or your condition into Google, the first line you read is that you're going to die in some cases. Yeah. Even if you've got like a cough, you'll get so it was all misinformation. So we wanted to form a platform called the Children's Cancer Platform, which where they can communicate with other parents going through it. They can get information on their mental health, their physical well-being, their financial advice and things like that. And that's what we did. We created it. We created the UK's first ever platform for exclusively for parents of children with cancer, um, which we're very proud of. And it goes deeper than that. But yeah, so that's our giving back because we experienced the bad side of the treatment before let's do something to make a change to those parents going through it. And no one can tell you more than what they go through than us who's been yeah, through every element of it. Right. Yeah. That's what yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, yeah, you've, you've been through it and you've lived and breathed it. And it sounds to me like the width of what you're doing has got, you know, from paying, you know, buying a pizza for, for the, how it all started for the lady who was potentially, well, maybe not the right words, but not in a worse situation than you, but going through something, you know, quite quite profound as well. You're paying for a pizza and then you're also lobbying, you know, the other end of the spectrum, you're lobbying MPs on changing mm. policy. And, you know, I I saw that, that um, what you've mentioned about the letter back from that MP. And obviously that resonated with me because obviously the world I'm in is I'm, I work a lot on career stuff and, and employment law and, and all my career background and stuff so that that really resonated with me which is you, you're absolutely right there's no you know there's you get paternity and maternity leave but you don't get there's not an official palliative care leave or or that level of support to when you bring bring a baby in in into the world so it sounds that giving back piece is is like you know, so, so wide at the moment. And obviously the platform feels like it's driving that. But I, the, you know, that, that what, I, it, what I'm into is that human instinct to give back, right? I mean, you're going through, you know, you're going through hell, but you see this woman who potentially has got a worse situation than yourself through, you know, having three three kids and, and struggling and stuff. And, and it's in those times that we, you find, you know, like any, I don't know, any tragedy in life is that you, you lean towards giving back, don't you? When you see others going through the same pain as, as, as what you're going through. I 
think it's the ability to detach yourself from what you're going through is relative to someone else's because I sat there and I thought in my position, okay, I'm financially okay. Mm. Mentally I'm okay, although I'm anxious. But then I looked across the room and I saw, wow, do you know, she's got added burden to it. She doesn't need that stress. And imagine being in our position because there's no competition involved. Both children had cancer. Can you imagine being worrying about getting home to pick another child up by leaving your other child in bed receiving chemotherapy. And I thought, you know, yeah, I don't know how I'd yeah. handle that. Yeah. And I just felt not sorry for her. I just, I had respect for her because you can't feel sorry for anyone in this condition. I know it's yeah. instinctively want to, I never wanted anyone to feel sorry for me because I wanted someone just to understand where I was coming from or understand yeah. what journey I was on. So I wasn't feeling sorry. I just felt like, First thing is, wow, I respect your strength and your resilience. And however strong people think I am, there's stronger people than me out there going through it harder. Um, and as I as always, everything is always relative. When someone comes to you with a problem, they go, oh, it's nothing compared to what you've been through. How Well, who knows? Look, what I've experienced is my own journey. And it's horrendous. I wouldn't wish anyone to go through it. Yeah. I wouldn't anyone to go through what you went through. But also, someone else's journey might be horrendous for them, and it's completely different. So you've got to always respect someone's journey and where they are with it. Yeah. But, um, <clears throat> but yeah, instinctively, you try and reach out to help people who are in less fortunate positions than yourself. And that's the nature I was, and that's the nature that Hugh was as well. I mean, there's a good example of my friend, um, Gavin and his two daughters that we were NCT together. And I remember his daughter, Evelyn, was carrying something across a field. It was quite heavy. And Hugh instinctively ran over and picked it up off her and carried it for her. And I thought for a four-year-old to do that just shows us a caring and empathetic side. Yeah. And he was always, uh, on his sixth birthday, uh, his little brother, Rafe, was a bit upset that he didn't get a present. So Hugh gave Rafe his present. Um, like, so you can have my present, Rafe. We can share yeah. it. And I thought, you know what? That's just the most kind, caring child that you can imagine. And what we want to do is was give an extension of what Hugh would have done. And I know Hugh would have been like, ultimately proud of us helping those guys going through it. So that's yeah. the, the fire is really yeah. knowing that we're carrying on what he was like. Um, yeah. and, but you, you have to say, you do find solace in helping others because yeah. if you can make someone smile in yeah. a dark time, when you know yeah. what you've been through, it does give you a sense of, well, a warm feeling inside. Yeah, warm. Some some sort of camaraderie, some basic human instinct that you know we're inherently born with to help others. It's you know, I mean, I'm not a psychologist, and we could go deep into this, but like like you helping out, helping out. Um, you know, he's he's a rape and, and and the girl you talked about before. It's like we're all born with these traits, right? We're all born with this, uh, this power of like, whatever you want to call it, giving back love. And then all of a sudden, whatever happens gets in the way. And, you know, and then, you know, I, you know, I talk about the hero's journey a lot, which is this whole return to authentic self, this whole man's, you know, man's search for meaning about how you go on this life journey. And then you end up sort of, you know, giving back, it could be, we all do at various stages of our life. But yeah, it's like, we're, we're all born with these traits, right? This innate, you know, and kids, kids remind us of that, um, you know. So well, I think, um, just yeah. the one thing I would say is that, uh, something that I learned quite well, is, is that a happy man wants a thousand things, a sick man just wants one thing, and that's to get out of bed. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. And everything reframes you, 
in a sense where we talk about what purpose you have after tragedy is that some death and that is it's not something that happens just while you're living it is a part of life you're born mm. you die and someone close to you is going to experience your death at some point and someone you know is going to have is going to die now, i know that sounds quite harsh to say but it's the true reality of being alive yeah. is that you're going to experience at some point but what those lessons can teach you is that actually living is more important and the way that you live your life is more important. And then if I can have any message from what I experienced with Hughes' short life was actually living is the most important thing and how you live your life. And that's what we're trying to put across to people as well is not only the message of helping people, but also the message of you've got an opportunity. There's many a child and I'll say child, I've seen it firsthand in the cancer ward. There's many a child that does not wake up tomorrow. Right, right. Which is a pointed thing. And that child hasn't given the opportunity that someone may have had for 45, 50 years to go and live their life. That child's journey is cut short. So, well, I will say there's no point. And the worst thing you can say to someone that has mental health problems is get up and get out and do yeah. things. You can't yeah. say that to someone. But as I said to you when we spoke yesterday, you do have a choice. Mm-hmm. And this yeah. thing we were going to, I know we were going to discuss, but you have a choice to make and as I said to you when I watched when Hugh was in his last few weeks sadly in hospital and in that same oncology ward there were people outside smoking who had been given the chance to carry on Mm. it it tore me apart because I'm thinking well hang on a second you've been given the opportunity to live your life and you're not taking advantage of the fact that you've been given the opportunity and your heart is still beating and what you're doing is pumping stuff into you to reduce your chance of living longer where that little boy there has never done anything bad in his life never smoked never drunk everything that he could have done properly gone on the best holidays and his life is being curtailed short so the message is that I believe and which I have and I tell people this is you've got a choice get out of bed get on with your life there's something to make of everything even though I'm 40 years old two months three months time and this is a new beginning for me because yeah. it's taught me, you know, get out of bed, six o'clock in the morning, out, do something. Yeah. yeah. And it, it's so true. Yeah, it is. It is so true. And obviously, you know, you, I, I remember years ago reading about uh, the Oprah Wimper story and what she had, she had been through in her childhood. And, you know, and you, there's that element of what she went on to achieve. Um, you, you do have a choice, right? And there's the... Uh, What's that old, um, there's that sort of proverb, isn't there, that, um, you know, a two sons both had an alcoholic, abusive father. One of the sons was uh, super, super successful, high flyer. Another son was, um, ended up being alcoholic, sleeping homeless. They were both asked the same question. Why, why you know, how, why are you like you are? How have you got to this stage? They both gave the same answer because of my father, right? And it's, I think the, the parody there was, you know, that you've got this, you've, all, you've always got this, this choice. And I think before we go on to to talk about the backstory um let's touch on that now could you you know that 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 fascinated me when we spoke yesterday is this this ability to have a choice and the you know you mentioned you referred to mo galdet on the stephen butler podcast right was that was that was do you feel if you hadn't listened to that kerry you would have still made this choice or was that a was that a real pivoting point because generally you know i can i remember in my life when i've read something in a book that's been like a turning point or a tipping point obviously this is different circumstances but you know i think i've been able and this is not 
uh, going as what I would talk to a counsellor, a psychologist, but having going through things in your life, you can make you resilient. Yes. Um, and it can make you the ability to be able to turn off and on your emotional switch can be of benefit to you. So, for example, during Hugh's uh, treatment, the first few weeks, we talk about mental resilience and stress resilience. I always kept a positive outlook with Hugh. I never, ever told Hugh what he had, never described what he had to him, always told Hugh that he'd be fine, never told Hugh anything that was different, apart from the fact that he had a few, um, what would you call it, um, lumps in his tummy that the medicines were going to zap out and the radiotherapy was going to zap out. That's, that's what we told him. Mm. And he had a few narcissists and it was all going to be fine and there was nothing to worry about. But even in the first three, four weeks when Hugh was in hospital and he was, I mean, I'm, I've seen sick people in my life and I've seen, but he was awful. Mm. Um, and watching a five-year-old do that. Yeah, yeah. But he was sat up in bed and I remember now the nurses, um, we were in the corner and there was a disabled toilet just at the end of his bed, and there was the nurse's mess was about 15 foot, maybe, about, yeah, about 15, 20 foot from his bed, and she needed to go to the toilet. And as a dad, you're there, you're with a bedpan, trying to get money, he's on his chemotherapy, and he's reducing what his tummy was and stuff like that. And he just couldn't do it, and I was like, right, we're going to set yourself a target now. Take out all the cancers. This is a target. This is what you're going to do. So every day I made him walk uh, 30 centimetres further every day. Get him out of bed. I said, you're going to get out of bed and you're going to walk. I said, you're going to walk to that toilet and by the end of three days' time, you're going to be on that toilet going to the toilet. And what, some people think I might have been hard, but you know what? I got him out and mm. I remember it now. We got, I think it was a Monday and by Thursday, he'd gone to the toilet himself on that toilet and all the nurses were like, whoa. And then what I made him do by Friday, I made him walk with all these wires hanging out and I was carrying the... the, the the trolley with all the drips and the chemo on it. And we walked out of the nurse's mess and I said, I told you he'd walk out here. And they all cheered him. I said, that is what you show strength you. I said, you get out and you show strength. And I've never let him ever sit in bed. And I always gave him this positive mental attitude. I said, you keep going. I said, no matter how hard it's going to get for you. Mm-hmm. So I never told him, but we keep going. So I always kept that attitude that I put to the back of my head that he had cancer. And I put always to the front of my head, like, we're going to keep positive and we're going to keep moving forward. Um, and mm. I got heavily into SAS through There's Winds watching during all this. The first book I read when I come out, when Hugh got diagnosed, was Anne Middleton's book, Power of Positive Thinking. Yeah, yeah. Um, which I've, I've, I've spoken to Anne actually about after, because I, I met him and he's done a video for me for charity. I saw that. And yeah. that helped me frame my positive mindset. So, right, we're going to go. And we're going to stay positive. We're sticking to the plan. When the plan changes, we'll deal with it. But at the moment, the plan hasn't changed and we're going along with it. There's no other thoughts. You stay in the present. Do not worry about the future. And because you can't control the future. So I said to him, that's what I said to him. We're going to move. We're going to keep. I bought him a trampoline at home, right, in the lounge. So we had, when he came home on the 17th of November, right, they said, oh, he lost, he must have lost. He was down to 13 kilos. He went in at 18 kilos. He was skinny, bag of bones. I made him on every day, and people might think I was harsh, but actually it was the best thing for him because there's evidence to prove that doing exercise can help um, affect your immune system, which they've now put out yeah. in the papers. I read about it, and it's a journalist to say. So we did, I put him on the trampoline. He loved it. I got videos of him starting off slowly, gradually over days, and he was actually running around on the trampoline after about a week, building up strength, and just kept this positive mindset that nothing's wrong with you, Hugh. You've got, you're going to be fine. And that kept him going, that mental attitude. And then when Hugh did die... Um, unfortunately, just we had a major relapse. 
I looked for people, always stayed positive, always stayed on a frame of mind where I could stay level. But, you know, it got tough and it got low. And I said, and you're searching for things to read. And I got, I'll be honest with you, I got deep into searching about life after death. Is he all right? I I say this openly. Is he okay? Is he, I want to know, I'm not religious in any sense. And I first admit that I'm spiritual. I just want to know, is he okay? Is he going to be fine on his own over there? And that's, that was the worst thing. Like I've left my child. Is he okay? I'm so sorry that he had to go through this, this last few weeks that my son had to go through it. And I felt bad in the sense that I couldn't take that away from him. And it was almost like a guilt that I'd like let him go through that, but I couldn't do anything about it. But is he, and I started searching. I read a book by Pin Van Lommel on life after death. I started reading yeah. Yeah. books about science from the other side, like feathers and stuff like that, believing it all. And you want to believe it because you want to feel like he's okay and there's yeah. certain things going yeah. on. And then I come across the podcast, but I never listened to Dario CEO. And I, I said, well, I'm going to go out walking every morning. I know all the things for me to keep exercise and sleeping. And I come across a short 10-minute bite-sized version of Stephen Bartlett's podcast with Mo Gowder, The Pursuit of Happiness, How to Be Happy. Yeah. yeah. And I listened to it. And then I listened to Mo, and he, he said the same. He lost his son, Ollie. I think his son was about 16 or 17. And That's right. a few years ago, yeah. it was from a procedure that was an accident in hospital. Um, and he was no, no knowledge, there was no upfront thing about him dying, and he just, he, he did, unfortunately, it's really sad. And he said, you know what, I have a choice. He said, I can be sad, or I can be happy. Neither are going to bring Ali back to me. Hmm. And I thought, you know what, he's right. He said, what am I going to do? And I said, and then I thought back to myself, what would Hugh want me to do? And I said, that boy was as smiley and as happy as you could get even up till about two weeks before he passed away he was on his bike running around the garden driving around the garden and he was terrible at that point but he never let it get him down because he never knew about it. we never knew it so he kept positive so i thought do you know what he wouldn't want me to be sad so i stuck in my head and he'd tell me to go do something about it um and that's why i said to you um when he was in hospital in April, I thought I needed some motivation to get out and keep fit. Yeah. So I stupidly, well, not stupidly at the time, because I, I, um, we thought he was going to be fine and they were telling us he was going to be fine or going to be treated and whatever it was so. So mm. um, I signed up to do the London Marathon uh, as a, and I am, as I said to you, I'm six foot, I'm 110 kilos. I've had ankle problems all my life. Yeah. I've always told, no, you can't run a marathon. You're not allowed, you can't do that. And I said, do you know what? I've watched child, children go through hell in here. If they do it now, I can do a marathon. Anyway, so I signed up for it. I started to practice running. When Hugh finished his main key man, rang the bell on the 23rd of May, I thought, right, I'm not going to start training until I know he's going to be okay. So in June, I started to do some running. I was so unfit because of seven months during COVID, I couldn't do anything with him in hospital. Yeah. So I started running, and then up to about the 28th of August, I was running. I got up to about 23 kilometers. And then I remember my wife, I said to you, my wife come out, she brought Hugh in the back seat to watch me running. And he was like in the back seat. He pulled the window down, he was like pumping his fist, go daddy. And I was like, wow. Like, well, that's motivation right there. And his hair started growing back, bless him. And it come back from his major king. I said, a little bit of hair left back. And he, every time a nurse would come around the house, he'd say, oh, daddy's running the marathon. He's going to go run around London. He's running the marathon. He was so proud of it. And then it dawned on me the week that we were in hospital before Hugh passed away, I remember saying to him, oh, I've got the marathon in the third. I remember thinking in my head, I've got the marathon in the third of October. 
I might, I might have to pull out. I don't know how long we're mm. going to be in hospital with him. And I asked him, I said, Hugh, do you want me to run him out? He goes, yeah, daddy, start running now. And that was one of the days that he was awake in that last few weeks. I said, go start running now. Go start running now. It's like, well, okay. And to him, he's like, yeah, he's so proud of it. And then anyway, and Hugh, unfortunately, did pass on the 18th. And I had the marathon book to do on the 3rd of October. I hadn't done any fundraising at any of that point. I never launched it to anyone or said that I was going to do it. Only to my close friends because I only kept a close circle during that time. Um, and I said to my wife, I'm going to do the marathon. She went, oh, you're mad. She said, you're, you're grief stricken. You're tired. You're broken. She said, you've dodgy ankle. You're unfit. You'll have a heart attack. I said, you know, I know, but I promised him I'd do it. So I've, I've I've got to do it. So yeah. the funeral was booked for the 5th of October, which was the Tuesday, and the marathon was on the Sunday. And fortunately, my brother was doing, Kai was doing the marathon with me. He was doing the marathon anyway. We both got into London Marathon together, and he was doing it for Bliss, um, which is a charity yeah. close to his heart. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, so I had a T-shirt printed a few picture on it. I wore, they call it, when children have cancer, they get beads of courage which is, you wouldn't know. So every time they have a surgery, a cannula, a chemo, or anything that happens medically, they get a bead for it donated by a charity. So Hugh's got 7,000 beads at home of things wow. that he had done. Yeah. Well, about, no, is it about seven? No, sorry, about 5,000 beads in 10 months of things that he had done to including cannulas, scans, therapies, yeah. which is, honestly, I've got a block of massive carry bag for them. Anyway, so I wore his beads around my neck, and, and to be honest, for 26 miles, I did the marathon. I cried for about 26 miles and I complete. And there's photos I put up and the video I put up on my social media of me doing it. Yeah. And um, I felt, I just sort of, after it, I just emotionally collapsed. And I was actually went into an ambulance after. I was so drained. Yeah. But the elation of it, I sat there and I did the marathon. I put the shoe around, uh, medal around Hugh's neck and he, we buried Hugh with the medal on it. So that kept me going for those 10 days after Hugh passed away, the marathon. And then about a week after, I started the charity up. So I needed little goals, but yeah. And that's that, that mental strength. And I had that choice because, as that Mo Gowdett says, there is a choice. Yeah. And that was my choice. I could have pulled out a marathon and completely just withered away in my sense of my mental state. But I said, no, right, we're going to do this because that's what he would have wanted me to do. And I chose to do that. And actually, it was the best thing that I could have done at the time for me personally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's... And stupid, I signed up to do it again in three weeks, in three months. <laughs> what, in three months from now, or...? I'm doing, I'm doing a London Marathon again on 23rd oh, you, of April. You're doing London Marathon again. Okay, all right. We can, we can um, well, let, let's unpick yeah. that. But, um, so, okay. So I think this is a good point to sort of unpick and go through the timeline, right? Because so the lit so everybody can understand uh, certainly about, you know, what happened in the run up and then the relapse and the all, all the timing around this. So I think, you know, the starting point is, is late 2020, right? And at this point, this is when Hugh complains of stomach pains and that um, he's hit by, he's playing football with his mates um, and he's hit by football in the stomach. Now, I'm assuming that up until this point, you're leading a completely normal life like the rest of us, right? You're, there's no health scares. There's nothing, you know, Hugh's been on the planet for, for five, six years. There's nothing, there's nothing going on here. And then this is just totally random. So I'll give you an example. This is what I said to other people. Hugh was breastfed for 18 months. My wife yeah. gave him the best opportunity to start with. We always believe in organic food. 
Uh, he had all that. He did lead weaning. He had the best of everything. We were in lovely holidays, the best upbringing that you could have. We had lockdown uh, where we stayed at home. We, we spent all day, every day outside, playing in the garden. He's always jumping around the trampoline, playing, doing everything you'd think a four-year-old at that time would do. October, he started to go off his food. And I remember arguing with him a couple of times about, sure, you need to eat your dinner, mate. You need to eat now. Um, but he was still active. But he looked a bit quiet and he looked a bit introspective in a way. The Monday of the half term, he went on half term, uh, October half term, and he was a bit tired. And we just put it down to being at school after a holiday. He hasn't been at school for because of COVID. So he went to school. And the Monday, he came down to the, the golf club where I work, and we was hitting balls in the driving range. I got a video, completely flat stomach, no problems. Tuesday, I went into London to, to have a meeting. He came with me. On Wednesday, we went on a walk, and he, he complained of his uh, hip hurting on the walk. And, you know, as a child, as a parent, you just who's had no exposure to childhood yeah. cancer. Yeah. Going, oh, maybe you need to go to the toilet, mate. You've got a bit of wind or his growing yeah. pains. And he, so we did that. And then on Thursday... He had his friend round and they're playing in the garden normally. And one of the lads, the little lad, hit his football in Hugh's tummy, my wife tells me. And Hugh was a bit of pain, he started crying. And my friend was like, that's not normal, that. And so Thursday evening, um, normal routine, Hugh would get in the bath with his brother and they'd have a wash and stuff like that. We looked at Hugh, he was sitting on the floor, <coughs> excuse me, and his belly was distended, uh, bloated. And he was struggling to put pressure onto his hip. So he was like sitting in a weird angle. So I oh, that don't look right. And he was in discomfort that night sleeping. And it's the first night really that Hugh was pretty independent. And he jumped into bed with me in the spare room. And I remember him just going, well, I don't feel great, daddy. And, and what's what I feel? And then at the time, you're thinking appendicitis, maybe gastroenteritis. Anyhow, we phoned my wife, we had a conversation and as a, a normal hypochondriac father, he said, oh, look, leave the doctors alone. I don't want to go there. He got COVID. And this is pre-vaccinations and everything like that. This is just before the second lockdown. It's the second lockdown. So she found the doctors up. Yeah. Yeah, just before. So we just come out of the main lockdown. It's the second lockdown. And he had nothing for it. He was right. It's raining through the whole of the COVID. Uh, second, so um, she said, I'm not comfortable with that. I said, fine, you've got to do what mother, you do what you got to do. So she found the GP up in the morning. And the GP said, look, it sounds like gastroenteritis. Give it till Monday. She says, no, he's, honestly, he can't walk across the road. He's in pain. So they got us an appointment at four o'clock at Carlton Court, which is our local GP surgery. He said, I think you need to go to the Lister Hospital in Stevenage because something's not right. And then I spoke to the consultant at 11 o'clock at nine. My wife put me on being a hypochondriac. He's thinking, bloody hell, he's got appendicitis. That means operation. Yeah. yeah. Take, that's the worst thing I was thinking. Anyhow, so um, 11 o'clock at night, I said to the consultant spoke to me, he goes, oh, we've got happy smiley by in bed, nothing to worry, just doing some tests and stuff, and then um, anything happens, we'll update you. Anyway, I went to bed that night, I was looking off the Rafe, Rafe was two at the time. <clears throat> I went there. And, then, and at three o'clock in the morning, my door was banging. My back door was like banging, banging, banging. I was like, whoa. Like, what's that? And I heard it, I said, I'm okay, no problems. And then um, my mum, I opened the door, my mum was at the door and I'd run out of bed and I actually smashed into the door from it, cut my head. So I blood poured down my head at the point. Wow. I remember it now and I walked down and said, look at my mum, she was like pale. I was completely pale. 
And I said, what's the matter? Have you spoken to Fran? I went, no. She goes, they, they think Hugh's got cancer. I was like, what? And I remember just sitting in the lounge with my dad and my mum and just sitting there like, what the hell? And then uh, because it was COVID, only one was allowed in the hospital at the time. So my dad drove me to Lister at four in the morning. And I remember just sitting there with my wife in this little room in the dark, with two doctors with masks on. They just said, um, we think Hugh's got cancer. We don't know where it's come from or what it is. Um, so we're going to send him to Addybrooks in an ambulance now. Um, this is a marathon. This is not a sprint. And um, we're not sure sort of thing. So, like, whoa. And at that point, Fran went in an ambulance with Hugh to Cambridge, Addybrooks. Mm-hmm. And I followed in Fran's car at four o'clock at five o'clock in the morning, just been told on my own, followed the ambulance. And then Hugh got taken out into the ambulance. And then, um, it, so we prepped him up for a week. Uh, so Neil by mouth went to do surgery for biopsies and they fitted Hugh with a Hickman line straight away um, which is the, the port that goes in through the neck and out the chest so he can get his medicines in yeah. uh, fitted him up straight for that put an NG line into him which is a nasal gastric tube into his nose yeah. so he can get yeah. the food in him and I'm not thinking what and I, 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 won't, I won't swear but what the fuck's going on here yeah. like, honestly yeah. Yeah. Like, I, we're in oh, we're going to put you into a cancer ward now as well. I'm like, what? This has yeah. gone so... We've gone from having possible appendicitis to... Anyway, so um, Hugh had his biopsy on the Wednesday and I remember saying quite point. I come back in and, you know, this is just after everyone's clapping the NHS after the whole summer and you never really, unless you experienced it, you don't really know how good they are. Yeah. Um, but I walked into the room one day and there's a female consultant called Charlie and you're trying to explain to Hugh as a parent what's going on. And she was lying on the bed next to him, uh, holding his hand, just talking to him through what's going to happen. And that sent me into complete meltdown because I thought, you know what, how just she's trying to explain to him what's going on. And then for an adult to hear the words, you've got cancer, it's heartbreaking. Like, it's the worst thing you can hear. But to hear that your child's got it, and then she's the intermediary between us and him, trying to explain to him in a, uh, uh, a, a toned-down version that's child friendly to what's going on. So she told him that she's going to take little samples from his muscle to check what's going on. And he had lumbar punctures done. And I mean, he had everything done. And then the hardest bit, which I would say, is that when he goes into the operating theatre, only one can go in there. But um, they give you like, a little pager. And you're walking around the hospital for two hours with a pager, waiting for the button to go off to see he's all right. And I mean, that is the hardest, longest two yeah. hours of your life, right? If you're child to come out of surgery. And then she put him in the when he was coming. And I remember sitting downstairs, and this shows huge strength. And I still remember now. I sat in the cubicle waiting for him to come back. And I was like panicking. Oh my God, he's had an operation for the first time in his life and he's had surgery. He came back upright in bed eating a jam donut. And I'm thinking, what the hell? I said, I'm there having like kittens about worrying about it. And he's sitting upright in bed with a comic eating a jam donut. And I'm like, are you sure? And he's got his neck sliced open where he had the Hickman line. I think, and he's not even bothered. I'm like, oh, okay, so this is how it's going to be then. We're going to be like straight out strong and not even bothered about it. We're going to go for it. So I thought, right, I'm going to take that and use his strength that he showed then. And do you know what the sad thing about the kids, was the most amazing thing about kids' oncology or any kids who are ill is that the younger they are, the more ignorant they are to it. And yeah. that helps you as a parent get through it. So Hugh, we, we, we protected him. Every time there's a cancer advert on TV, honestly, and the more your ears are attuned to it, the more they're on, turn it off. We told his school, look, this is what's happening. Please, if anyone mentions it, just 
try and soften it down. What's what's happening? Because you, your worst fear is, oh, you're going to die. You've got cancer. That's what yeah. I was worried about someone saying to him. But that's not the case. Because in children, they cure the vast majority of them. Over 84%, I believe, is cure rate in children. Right. Um, but, and then so at that point, he came back in and then we had to wait for the biopsy results. At this point, because his tummy was at a point where it was still blowing up because of yeah. the, before he had the chemo, uh, he had to go on some oxygen and things like that, and it started to get gradually more and more real. And then on the Thursday night, I remember now, uh, I left the hospital to swap over with my wife. And as I walked, as I was on the way home, my brother picked me up. And as I was on the way, she phoned me to say they've diagnosed him now. Do you want to come in and speak to the consultant? I was like, right, okay. And he sat me down in the quiet room. I've never heard of this type of cancer before in my life. Rhabdomyosarcoma. Never heard of it. Never Googled it. Didn't want to know about it. He just said it's a cancer of the muscle. And then he said, we're going to start you on chemo now. I said, okay. So what happens is, next? So this was, this, this was after surgery, right? So the top, all this This time, is all in the space of a week. This is a week. This is a week. Right, okay. So he, he, start, he went to Addybrooks on the Saturday morning. Wednesday, he had the biopsies and lumbar punctures done. Thursday, he was diagnosed. Thursday evening. And Friday, which was Halloween he started his first course of Ivado, which is Iphosphamide, Vincristin, Astomycin, and Doxorubicin. Yeah. So he had four chemotherapies in him at once to start with. And so the course and the, how we were set was, um, it was 26 weeks of intensive chemotherapy. So one every three weeks. Um, for the first two months, it was one a week. So you'd have a push through the line of Vincristin, uh, for the first two months. And then there was a scan at Christmas, which was horrendous because you, you get, as the, the parents, the family world, you call it scanxiety. And people get this, um, you're worried about the scan results, like mm -hmm. scanxiety. This, you, honestly, it's like, it's like you're trying to stay in the present and worry about it, but you're worried because obviously that dictates how your child's treatment's going. Um, so he started, and he, you can instantly see, as soon as he started the chemo, his belly went back down to normal, went back flat, and he started perking up again. And then we came home. I remember they put us into a halfway house between us and the hospital on the 16th or 17th of November. <clears throat> so we went in there, and then Hugh started to lose his hair at that point. So I remember, and that was a big significant moment for me because it yeah. brings it home yeah. that it's real because yes. you're looking yeah. at children in that ward that are bald and you think wow they i mean you, it's like a real eye-opener that's the world i've got i don't want anyone else to go in that ward who doesn't need to scan but you go in it's an eye-opener and if someone's feeling that they need motivation to do something in life a step into that ward will give you motivation to get up and get on with your life and do something positive because they're amazing those kids anyway so he started he was sitting in his bed doing leg, I remember it now, with an NG line on. We're feeding him from a pump, trying to get calories in terms of feed him up, which is uh, is all because you've so many different things you've got to do. And then um, all of a sudden, I, I remember my wife was in with him, but she found out his hair starting to come out. It's like left on the pillow because mm -hmm. after, and he, mm -hmm. his shoe had beautiful blonde locks, like, like really beautiful hair, thick hair. And it started coming out and like and droves, like masses of it. And I thought, do we shave his head? And this conversation we had. Anyhow, so Fran said she went to the toilet and a shower one day and Hugh was eating breakfast and Hugh pulled his hair out and just stuck it in her cereal. But he found it funny. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And he, he, was, yeah. he, he was finding it hilarious. He goes, where's my hair? Look, they go, look, mummy, there's more hair. There's more hair. And I was like, and she said to me, she, she was beside herself and she, oh, quite rightly, she was really upset about the hair losing because it's bringing it home. He found it hilarious. He goes, look, I can pull my hair out. 
and I kept loads of his hair. I mean, at the time, I don't know why, but I kept his hair. I've got loads of his hair at home. I kept, yeah. which is some bit more, but it's, um, I kept some of it. And uh, but yeah, his hair come out, and that was a real eye opener. I think, wow, now we're real. This is the real deal now. And also, it shows that the chemo's doing something to his body, which gives you some sort of hope in a sense because they give this medicine, you don't really see anything tangible from it from the outside. Yeah. Yeah. As soon as they start losing the hair, you go, well, hang on a second, this stuff's doing something. Yeah. Um, so that happened, and then that, and they came home then, and then yeah, gradually lost all the hair, and then we were back in every two weeks. Well, to be fair, we were it was constant, like due from COVID, and like I said to you, we did it through second lockdown. So as soon as he went in November, Boris announced that we're going into second lockdown. So we did it on our own, really. Uh, we isolated ourselves. If people wanted to see him, they had to sit in the garden uh, in chairs. And they could see him through the window. We wasn't going to risk COVID. Um, we didn't want it because his immune system was completely shot with the drugs that he was having. Yeah, we yeah. decided that, like, we got to protect us. So I didn't go out. My wife didn't go out. I came home from work. Obviously, we were home for lockdown, which was, in a sense, it was the best scenario because everyone was washing their hands. Everyone was wearing face masks. So... Mm-hmm. With that, that world, as soon as you get an infection, you're in hospital for a certain amount of days, as I said earlier. Mm-hmm. So we kept away from infections. And actually, we did pretty well. He never really had any infections during that time. He had a couple of scares, but nothing. He never really had an infection or a temperature yeah. in that six months because we kept him away from everything. And also, we believe it's because we kept him active. We made him run around and do stuff mm-hmm. in the garden. And that, we know that like from research, the stuff that can help during treatment is the exercise and things. So like I so we just went completely on our own for it, through COVID, this is before vaccines. We managed to get the vaccine first, one of the first lots in January. Yeah. Um, I know a friend that was a pharmacist and well, we went down as a carer and we got the vaccine, which freed us up a little bit because we felt a bit of security blanket yeah. for him. Yeah. Um, and then, yeah, then we started coming out uh, in about March time and we kept it quiet. No one really knew what was going on with us. And we kept it away from everyone because yeah. we didn't, didn't really want to own their reaction, reaction, if I'm honest with you. When you tell somebody your child's got cancer, well, they hear it. They want to tell them, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. But oh, you yeah. didn't give it to him. I know it's hard to say, but don't be sorry. Just be thankful that he's being treated. That's what yeah. I used to say. Yeah. So um, Hugh rang the bell in on May 23rd, didn't he? So from October, point of where this starts to unfold, May the 23rd, he, he rings the bell. What was the sort of, in terms of, obviously, you're going through hell, right, from October up till, what What was the sort of turning point when things started to look better? Is it Jan, Feb, March? What's, well, there, obviously, there's, there's a point there where you're, you're there's, a, there's, a, there's a point there, isn't there, where you're starting to go, well, hold on a minute, things are looking... Well, no, all our, we were looking well up until about August, I'll be honest with you, we were on maintenance. He went back, Hugh rang the bell on the 23rd of May, which is controversial. I disagree with the name of the bell, end of treatment bell, because oh it can be it can be misleading in a sense. It's not yeah. end of treatment. It's you had another year left. It's end of intensive treatment. Right. I would personally prefer it to be called a milestone bell. Yeah, reframe it, absolutely. Because I think also, because also, what I will say with that bell, if you're on the ward and your child can't ring that bell and you hear it, you're devastated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm, imagine, that's really, yeah, that's imagine being sat on that ward and your child's got palliative and you're hearing that bell and that child's ringing that bell, they can't ring that bell. How does that make you feel? 
So that's why I believe it should be called a milestone bell because every child in that has a milestone. And that, that's the best thing I think you can call it as a milestone bell. But anyway, so he rang the bell and I said, we thought we were uh, winning. He went back to school for six weeks, which was amazing with his friends. So what, time, what, what point did he come out of hospital then? So he rings the bell May 23rd. And then what point was he released, discharged from hospital? First time. No, he wasn't. So he was never, he was, no, so he went from an inpatient on the 23rd of May. So he had a six months intensive chemo. Yeah. And yeah. Then he was, he, the eight, he went on to a year's worth of maintenance therapy. Right. So okay. he was still taking chemotherapy at home. Uh, so okay. I once a day that we'd have to give him, we'd have to wake him up first thing in the morning and give him his chemo in his mouth. And yeah. then he'd go in once every three weeks, he'd go into the hospital and have a push through the line of another chemo. So that was maintenance therapy. So um, hold on, so this is this is where it's, I agree with you, because my understanding of deception, stupidly enough, or is that when you ring the bell, you're, 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 you're clear. That's what I always thought ringing the bell was. Well, the bells are given by charities, a charity called an end of treatment bell charity. Right. So they're donated to the ward. Uh, a lot of doctors, having spoken to them now, don't agree with the bell who I spoke right. to right. and some which and, and I with other parents are under listen when when you walk past that bell in the ward every day when you're with a child that's your goal to ring that bell that was my goal to ring that bell with you because I, there was nothing great I wanted to know, we're on the way we're, we're winning uh, so we rang the bell and that was one goal ticked off achieved and I told him that and he wasn't that bothered about it to be fair Hugh. he was like yeah whatever yeah. But, I've got the, yeah. but he doesn't know the significance of it anyway but the milestone bell is a much better framing of the word because you've still got a year to go anything can happen in that year honestly they'd expect your chances of coming back in are fewer in that year of maintenance but the type of cancer that he had unfortunately was a high relapse rate and the speed of it was thing but so so he rang the bell he went back to school June finished school in July he went to summer school for a week and he was getting a bit tired but that's because of the chemos and stuff <laughs> and then I've got videos to my phone 15th of August he's playing in the lounge with me and then he started to go a bit quiet around the 28th, 29th of August. We took him back into hospital on the 26th because his temperature was fluctuating. How were you, how were you feeling then around this mid-August mid point? Were you, I mean, on a like on a sort of in terms of positive, and he's gonna, he's gonna. I thought he's got uniform, ready to go back to school. From my, my eyes, there was no other alternative that he was going to school and that he was going to be fine. Right, um, and, and it was a case of living with the fear of it coming back for the rest of our lives. Mm. And the big thing that parents have to do is when they have this child going through cancer is that you have to sign, I mean, copious amounts of forms about the risks that the chemotherapy radiotherapy will give them in later life. I right. mean, for example, right. when we sign the forms for radiotherapy, one of them was his spine's going to be any shorter. It's going to shrink the foam in the spine. Oh. Second one is that it's going to make make them infertile, possibly. Mm. The third one is is that this could give them secondary cancer in the bowels when they're 25, 30. And you're signing all this stuff, and you're thinking, I haven't got really much of a choice here, have we? What's the choice? But you have to sign it. And some of the medicines, the chemotherapy, I was on, I know doxorubicin is very potent. Um, and this is one of these things that we talk about with charities. Chemotherapy children hasn't really changed since the 50s or 60s. Right. Some of the drugs that Hugh was on, for example, vincristin, nifosamide, doxorubicin, were made in the 60s and the 50s. Mm. And they're still as harsh and as brutal as they are today, back then. 
Um, so you're, you're, you're signing all those films and worrying about them. And that was the worry in my head was like, well, okay, when we're 25, 30, I might not be around anyway, um, but we'll deal with it then. And there may be a cure for it when we get to that point. So that was always my thought process. Let's deal with that when we get to it. Let's just get through it now. Let's you know, get him to school. Yeah. So the, the aim was always in July, August, like fatten him up because he lost a bit of weight, fatten him up, get him back to school so he, he can be um, a bit more sturdier to prevent colds and flus in the winter um, so he can go to school and have a long run at school. Yeah. And then like on the 26th of August, I remember I came off the golf course and my wife said, look, he's got a temperature, he'd have to turn to hospital. So we took him in and they couldn't find a temperature and they didn't do any blood work on him at the time. <clears throat> and they just sent him home and then progressively, progressively that week is where his tummy started to swell back up. We took him in and then unfortunately on the 8th of September, they just told us, unfortunately, that was, that was it. There's no more chance of a cure. And it was all about making him comfortable at that point. Um, and then Hugh passed away on the 18th. So it happened very quickly uh, from being running around the garden on the 22nd of August to 16, well, 20 days later or 18 days later passing away. So and that was the nature of it. And um, who knows why, what happened? I don't know. It was one of the, unfortunately, he was the card he was dealt was the aggressiveness of it. He had every opportunity we gave him to beat it. And, you know, when I say this, sitting back after 16 months, it would have probably taken him down in his life after. Mm -hmm. And it would have plagued him. And I hate to say he wouldn't have had much of a life for medically. He'd have had something wrong with him because of the way that the treatments were. And it's not a reason to be... There's no reasons. You try and justify in your head what happened and try and put a if you can a positive element to it all there is no positive element to any of it but he would have been plagued with it I believe all his life um, and would that have been unfair and then I'm also of the view that he wasn't old enough to understand it and I don't know how I would have dealt with the conversation about him being older asking me the questions about it mm. so in a sense him being young and just turning six when he did pass away was like it was, it was innocence and ignorance he didn't know and to him, it was just like, well, I, I, I don't know how to describe it really. But it was the ignorance and innocence of it that saved me for it because he didn't know anything about it, the gravity of it, which was a weird, thankful thing in the, in the thing. And when, but, you, yeah. when you look back on your, let's say, your darkest moments, Kerry, what, you know, do you... Is it the sort of start of this process and the, or is it the, you know, the latter part or is there an acceptance point as you're going through that latter part? I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. So, yeah, just interested to know how you were. I think I accept that he's not coming home. I accept that that's never going to be the case, that he's never going to walk through the door. I accept that he's never going to be in his playroom. Um, I'm never going to. Uh, have a chat to him again. I accept that. That's the hard. That's what grief is. The raw emotion of it. The you can accept that. That's 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 what death is. Um, that they're not in your life anymore, and that's the void and the quietness that comes from grief. It's the acceptance of why it happened. You'll never find it. You'll never accept. You'll never understand why it happened, and that's something that you have to live with. And because that it's not one day, two days, and and what people say to you is when. You're going through grief. Oh, you'll never get over it. I mean, yeah, no, I'm going to get over it. 
say the bloody obvious, I'm never going to go over it, but I learned to live with it. And one of the things I, I discussed quite with a few people who have gone through it, and I try to pull them out of the, their, their darkness, is it's like there's a bridge, right? Our, and this is one side of the river, which is the darkness and the grief of it. And the other side is your life before it and the life before you knew about it. And your process of building that bridge is what you do in between. So your counselling, your ability to go through the seven stages of grief, whatever they get the yeah. order they're in, the way that you can get on with your life, the way that you choose to get on with your life, and how you deal with that stuff. That's the process to me of building that bridge. And I would say I'm at a point now where that bridge is complete. Mm-hmm. And now I'm able to. And there are some days when I live mostly ninety percent in the world that I lived in before, but I dip across the bridge sometimes and sit in the other side because it feels right for me to sit in the other side sometimes to be mm-hmm. reflective and a bit upset because it is upsetting. But that's that's but it's the ability to jump between the both is when I think that you've gone through it and you've succeeded to go through it in the right way. A lot of people that I meet have gone through it don't really form that bridge. They don't really understand the process of moving on. <laughs> and it's not moving on. And the hardest thing with grief is, and what someone said to me, and I didn't really think it at the time, but it's true, is that when the funeral's finished and the two or three weeks have gone, when everyone gets back on with their lives, you feel like you're abandoned. Mm-hmm. But that's just people getting on with their lives. Your world stops spinning, mm-hmm. but their lives are still spinning. Do you know, there's people in Turkey right now, sadly, that have been devastated by this earthquake. Their lives have stopped spinning, but mm. our lives are continuing to spin. So, you know, it's your your world is your world, and yeah, it's tough when you find people going back to school and starting to forget what you're going through, and that's the hard bit about it because you feel, why is everyone are oh, you feel everyone should be sad? Well, no, mm. and uh, you're you're looking at Hugh's friends, you're thinking, oh, wow, it hurts me to see them playing, but it's not their fault. Mm. It's mm. not their fault. Hugh's not here. They, they're part of Hugh's journey. They're the ones that carry the stories of Hugh with them. So um, that, 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 that's how I've, I've dealt with it um, in that sense with the dark stuff. But it's also, like you say, um, we had the, I had the choice to make it, but it, I think you have to have the right tools in place to do so. Yeah. I think, you know, it sounds to me like the, what you said about crossing the bridge, it sounds to me that because you've you know, in your mind or how you reframe it, you've crossed that bridge. You're in a place where you're able to kind of like accept and go on and to do what you've done, which is this, we've got a choice. It seems yeah. that if you haven't crossed that bridge, then that maybe that that doesn't, you know, yeah. happen to you. That doesn't happen to that person. If they're stuck on the other side, then that's where that choice could be like really, really small, whereas almost like you've crossed the bridge and then made that choice, which is you, you know, where yeah, but I think talked about. I think you have to make the choice. You have to say, well, I'm going to cross that bridge. I have to do something to get out of this. And um, listen, everyone's entitled to deal with grief in their own way. It's personal how people deal with it. My way is not the right way. It's how I've dealt with it. My wife's way is completely different to mine. Mm. Um, and she's dealing with it as well, really well. So it, there is no right or wrong way. That's how I use it in my head. Um, I have a, I can see it in my head how I've dealt with it. And people must. And I said to you at the start, I thought people thought I was mad, like in, in denial. 
about mm. dealing with it because I started doing charity, I started doing fun runs and organising things. I said, no, I'm dealing with it. And then like people say, oh, you've got to slow down. No, nope, I won't slow down. I said, if I slow down, I'll have time to think. And um, and we that's why I approached you actually in the first instance was I said, like, I'm all over the place. Yeah. I need someone to help me just slow down and organise myself. Yeah. And, and you helped me put some protocols in the place to help me slow down, which I still do now, actually. I've got yeah. a whiteboard in my house, although it might be once a week, but I put goals that I want yeah. to do. Yeah. <laughs> but I needed to slow down in the sense that I was going too fast to do things properly. Yeah. Um, so I've slowed down and it's really helped me to write goals and look after, make sure I look after myself. Yeah, um, and that was the main thing as well because when you're going through this stuff you can it's all right to keep yourself busy but actually you need to focus on the engine that's driving you yes. and that's the thing yeah. that I didn't do for a long time and um, so now I, 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 we share podcasts about ice bars exposure and yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm well into I'm listening to like uh, Huberman Lab and Peter Attia and things like that about like health stuff and it does make you think once you start looking after yourself in a sense there's no reason why you can't look after yourself and it does help the mind and what you eat reflects your mind what you do in the morning so I changed my whole routines about making sure that I can sort myself out first to be a base for my family so yeah. like my, my daily routine at the moment is like I get up at six with a light lamp right so I make sure I've got natural light and I'm yeah. stupid that I jump into this ice bath thing right my wife thinks I'm crazy but I jump in there 10 five minutes in there I go downstairs I have a black coffee and make sure I have some fruit or whatever it is in the morning now I always fit in scheduling time for gym sessions and I we spoke about that yeah. at night time I always try and uh, turn the TV off and have some time without TV so I was always like trying to make the best of what I could do in a bad thing. Yeah. And the biggest thing that I do as well is what I've learned from this whole thing is which I did more with you, but then you don't know at the time what you're doing is put the phone away and actually sit down and play with my kids. Yes. Yeah. And that's the time that they're only young for five years when they yeah. want to play with you. Yeah. And that's, that's the time where Rafe might say to me, daddy, what do you want to, play with me yeah. yes I'm going I'm to play with you no matter I'm not watching the football we'll turn it off and I'm going to play because I can watch the rerun anytime yeah. It's, yeah I'm never yeah. going to get that moment back to play Duplo again or yeah. something again so that's what I've learned to do it's that precious moment isn't it so Raph's now four years old and you've got your newborn Jude six months yeah yeah, so obviously that's yeah, that sort of appreciation of that precious time and phone away. I think um, you know it's really. I mean, obviously, you know, it's fascinating for me being in the world of self development and coaching and stuff to hear that these self development tools and techniques that you're bringing into you know is is helping you because you know to help you from where you've you know you you've been is like wow do you know for, for me to hear that it's like wow because i'm you know obviously obviously the, the world i'm in and the people i work with it's like you know a little bit oh i'm just feeling a bit demotivated today what can we all working towards this goal whereas for you to apply it from where you've come from gives it a whole nother a whole nother meaning and you know i like a bit on what you've said about you know is People will always give you that advice of slow down or, or you and you know, or do this, and you've, you've just got to kind of go your own way. Like, I can't sit here and pretend to understand why you run a marathon in between, you know, cues, passing, and funeral, right? I mean, that for me sounds like whoa, but it, there's obviously there was a reason for it, there was something around it. It was your your way, you know, it was your way of yeah. processing or it was, it was having short term goals. Yeah, and I, I set myself targets and goals to hit in terms of yeah. like that will focus me to get through the next ten days. 
and then um, and that's a difficult thing. So, like as we mentioned, I spoke to you. Weekends, I don't like. Like as much mm. as it means, weekends means there's no routine or structure. Yeah. Um, I prefer my wife to put in the diary. There's three kids parties to go to Saturday, yeah. Sunday, yeah. and to go wherever because it means I'm somewhere and I've got to be somewhere at a certain time. Where if it's left up to my own devices to do something, I find it hard to find something to do that's sort of purposeful on that day. You know, there's lots of things to do, but you know, like you need something clear to do. Um, so that's why I have my routines. I drop Rafe off at school at 8.35 and I pick him up at 4.30. I know that I'm doing that. That's my, I need to be there in between. I need to sit in my day. So there's a goals and there's things every day that I need to do. But it's a quiet time. Like Christmas, the week after Christmas and New Year is like the worst time in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Honestly. Because that's like, no one's about, everyone's doing stuff. And even Christmas is hard enough for someone who's lost a child. But to that, that, that week period, it's like, well, like, what do you do now? And I can't wait to go back to school, wait to get to school, go to work. Um, as much as it's yeah. nice to spend some time at home. But actually, it was nice to spend some time at home because... Like I say, you don't really get much time with your kids nowadays. Life's so busy. Yeah, and you don't, get, and you don't get it back, really. And you don't get it back, and that's 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 the thing. Um, so it sounds like obviously routine is is helped you your thing. Obviously, you know, it's, it's at the moment it's ice baths, but it could be other things and stuff. I mean, you know, you're if you were to sort of anyone listening, Kerry, and you know, there 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 might be in a bit of a dark place at the moment for whatever reasons. What what would you sort of say, you know, is 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 a good starting point or something that's really not helping to overcome grief? Because I think that's a totally different substance. Yeah. But I mean, in just in general, to to move forward, to make some progress in life, to feel better. I would. I mean, I'm talking from, I've been at the lowest point of what I see was being, but everything is relative. But mm-hmm. I think you just need to establish two things, probably where you want to be or what mm-hmm. you need to change. And if you can change it, then there's a way out. If you can't change it, then you've got to deal with the hand that you're dealt and work the best around it and work towards something to be. If you can change the fact that your um, job isn't going well or you're in a position where you don't like the way you look, there's all things that you can change and there's no point worrying about it because they're changeable. You can change it any time, but you've got to have the power in your mind to change it. And that is the hardest thing for people some days is just to say, right, today I'm going to make a change. And we know that changes take three weeks to form a habit um, and to break the cycles down. But it's staying strong for those three weeks and removing cues that might cause you a problem. Um, So I would say that, um, you can change things. And I say this to my wife all the time, and, but if you're worrying about something, there's a worry chart. Can you change it? Yes. Then what's the problem? Okay. Yeah, if yeah. you can't change it, then don't worry about changing it and you have to deal with that problem. So that's the first thing that I would suggest is like analyze what you can change and then form a step-by-step process of how you're going to do it with short-term goals because um, if it is achievable – Document it, right? As you said, we we discussed it. Write down what you've done well that night, yeah. and how you've stepped to change that thing, um, and then you can see after a while. And then you see a lot of these people on this Instagram doing fat loss journeys when they take a picture of themselves at the start, and at the end of it, they've logged how they've done it. And some of the journeys are incredible. But it does motivate you to take the worst picture of yourself and stick it on the fridge. 
yeah. and say, yeah, I'm going to not look like that again. Um, and the same with sort of, I, I know a friend, that's how we met through um, my friend introducing me to Andy and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Life addictions and things like that, removing the cue, but find a way that you can change it because most things in the world you can change. The only thing you can't change is your health, really. If it's yeah. something you can't, well, yes, you, you probably can, in a sense, lose weight and get yourself healthy in some sense. There's certain things you can't do, but there's nothing reason to stop you changing anything, really, if you want to. Um, and that would be my thing. And also, is you've got to be happy and happy with yourself because that makes everything. And it's always looking for excuses about why you can't do something or why what something else is not making you happy. And I'm not a psychologist or counsellor, any of you, but yeah. my only opinion is sometimes the best person to look at is yourself as to why you're not happy. Absolutely. Yeah. And you're the only one. And I say to everyone, like a billionaire, they'll all end up in the same box as each other. We'll all end up in a six foot box yeah. underneath the ground. Doesn't make a difference what we are. But I'm, I said this to my wife. I said, it's what we create in between is how people remember you. Because the same thing is all written on a headstone in loving memory here so and so but will people remember you after you're gone I think that's the thing that I now want to achieve and I said this with, with my wife about Hugh she was six years old when he died in this world not the people that have come to me and saying oh, I've heard about Hugh you wouldn't be talking about Hugh if Hugh wouldn't have passed away and what I've done with charity and my wife have done if he was still here there's no way me and you'd be talking and you wouldn't be talking about Hugh's legacy so what I've managed to do is make sure that everyone up and down the country knows a story about Hugh and his legacy. So yeah. there's, there's people now that have seen a picture of him. He's been in the papers. He's been in the news. I was on TV talking about him. But now I've created this legacy where everyone's seen him. So that's a legacy. And yeah. that's what I believe is that if you, you can create something where people you yeah. can remember you by, I'm not just saying, oh, yeah, he's a nice guy. But actually, no, he did good for the world. He did good for someone. I think that gives you purpose in life if someone can do that. Yeah, that's it. And it's reframing, you know, some of the work I do is is reframing what that legacy looks like because we've all been sort of, we're in a system where, you know, legacy isn't, um, you know, isn't wealth and, you know, legacy is how you impact others, you know, how you, what you leave behind. And I've been on my own journey. I'm, I'm sort of reframing, reframing legacy um, over the last couple of years. I think, you know, I think legacy is quite a, for a man, it's quite a powerful thing about what do they leave. It could be being the best dad you could possibly be. That's it. Making sure that you leave your family financially well when you leave this yeah, world. That's it. That's, it's all micro relative to what your circumstances are. That's and I think as long as someone you do something, I think, but that's, that's my opinion. Yeah. Like I say, whatever people choose, but it's all relative to someone. It is. It's all relative. So, okay. All right. We're, well, let's start to uh, think about uh, wrapping this up. So just, just to sort of touch on um, the charity again, Kerry, what, what's the kind of end, you know, what, not, well, it's not an end game, is there, but what's, what's the, you've touched on a bit about, we've talked about the kind of width of work and I've seen, obviously there's, you know, amazing trustees, you've got celebrities involved and stuff. What's the sort of, you know, where's this, where do you see this going? So, personally, um, I'd love to see this go nationally. I'd love to see this go around the world. Um, yeah. That's not my aim for it. And my wife's aim, obviously, it's just me and her that are running at the moment. Yeah. And what we've done in nine months, I think, is truly incredible. Uh, yeah. we've, we've, we've taken a concept from March. We had an idea. We created a brand. 
and we're in every room in Great Ormond Street, in the Children's College, there's a post of our app, we're in Birmingham, we're in Addingbrooks, we have users on our app all up and down the country, and we're growing. We work with 120 families currently. Um, we provided at Christmas, we sent 60 boxes, I think, into Addingbrooks of parents to have a present at Christmas. We bought wow. pizzas. We spent over a £1,000 on pizzas on Christmas Day for Great Ormond Street and Addingbrooks for parents to eat in the hospital. Uh, when also what I wanted to be was act as the voice for these parents to put up mm. an argument against the authorities to say, look, we deserve better. So I think I can do that. I think that's where we want to be with it. We want to be this voice that's making the change. I know full well that what we're doing is making an impact on other charities because I've seen them change some of the things that they're doing, whether or not in a microwave or maybe that's a little bit arrogant of me thinking that, but I know that we're making an impact on the waves that we're making about well-being and physical health and mental health, and that's so important um, for these parents because we know from research that a parent that – um, has a child of cancer compared to the population is three times more likely to have a mental disorder such as anxiety, PTSD, mm-hmm. depression. But like I said to you at the start, there's a hundred day wait on the NHS. And also this is a continuing mental mm-hmm. problem because once touched by a child of cancer, it's not going away. And then what position you're in, my position or someone who's survived, you're still going to be anxious mm-hmm. all your life in some situations. So the big thing was to try and get, parents to talk about and get the community the, the statutory authorities to talk about mental health so we've been asked recently to communicate with a new children's hospital so in east of england about what we think parents welfare should be like which is not which is a start so it's that mm-hmm. we've started to have this conversation and so we want to see better facilities for parents and uh, services and mental health physical well-being one of the things we're doing now um, which we're trying to do is put more physical exercise into the parents. So mm. we would, the next step we would like to do is put exercise bikes into hospitals, into mm. the parents' rooms so they can exercise and that can be massive. Um, we've actually just, uh, um, I say source it, but charities don't source deals, but we've done a, a partnership with Hustle, a gym company, where yeah. Uh, families can get a discount off monthly memberships to local gyms and hospital so the parents can go out and use the gym to get some mental health, some physical um, therapy yeah. and exercise. Uh, we're providing this food in the hospitals. It's everything really, we're trying to attack every angle that we think that can help a rounded approach to the parents and also provide community on social events and things like that. So we want to take parents out socially and do things, but we want to take this around the country. There's no reason why we can't take this abroad. Um, so, for example, Australia or America, because the app is universal. Yeah. Uh, anyone can take and a parent going through childhood cancer, whether it's Australia, America, UK, France, Germany, it's the same. It's the same experiences, uh, same trauma, same stress. So we can take it. It's universal. And that would be we have a target where we want to be in a year. We have a target where we want to be in five years. And ultimately, I can see in a way, in a few years, I'd like to step back from running it frontline and then concentrate on lobbying and going underneath and helping the route of how we can actually solve things because I quite enjoy um, trying to solve these problems for people because I think that's where we need to be. And no one's really speaking up because, as I said, if you're a parent in my position, for some God-known reason I've got some strength to do this, and my wife has, is that we're carrying on the fight. Um if any other person I've spoken to would have just wanted to hide away and run away from this yeah, yeah. problem and, and leave the childhood cancer world. And, but 
no, I'm up for a fight. And yeah. uh, that's where I see it going. And we're broadening out. And it, it is, it's been amazing, nine months. I mean, I think I say I'm 40 in, on April. And I'll never be thinking ever, when I was 37, in a million years, that I'd be doing this. Especially, yeah. I, I, I would have never thought, when Rafe was born, I thought, you know, that was it. I've got my two children. Yeah. I've got my house. I've got my wife. This is it. We're going to have a future now. Um, 2023, she was going to be eight. Rafe would have been five. We'd have been able to go to football matches together. That's what I thought my life would have been. Yeah. But life don't play out like what you think it should no, be. It never does. It never. And now I'm sitting in 2023. I've got a six-month-old baby. Hugh's no longer here. Rafe's now the older brother in the house. Mm. And um, CEO of a charity that's helping parents of children with cancer. And if someone would have used those words, children with cancer, to me two years ago, honestly, I'd have had a heart attack. Yeah. I, I'm a, I was like, wow, what are you talking about? Children, I don't want to hear that word. I turn off the adverts on the TV. I don't listen to any discussion on cancer. Yeah. I was paranoid about it. Yeah. And then now I'm like, okay, let's have a conversation about it. And let's help people going through it. Because, yeah. But like I say, you never know what's around the corner. And sometimes you've got to deal, what's they say? Get lemons, make lemonade. Yeah, I've so. probably got the phrase wrong. Yeah, no, I think yeah, I think yeah, I, th- I think that's exactly it. So, okay, Kerry. Um, so people can find you at itsneveryou.com.co.uk. Yeah, so most of our interactions are on social media. So yeah. on Instagram, it's at its.neveryou. And yeah. our web's its.neveryou. And on our website, it's www.itsneveryou.com. So all one word, no apostrophe between its, itsneveryou.com. We have a new website coming soon. So um, the website that we have currently might not be as updated as we would like to be. But um, and if you are or do know a parent that has a child with cancer up to the age of, well, it could be any age, really, um, a child is still a child at their age, then they can, if you go on the App Store or the Android Store, you can search for the Children's Cancer Platform, but you can download it on there. It's free to download. You can sign up. There's a few onboarding questions that you have to answer. And then on there, you'll find like the parents' community where you can chat to other parents going through it. Every form that you need on there to download to get your financial help, like disability living outs, carers allowance, grants that are available to you financially, you can access on there. And also one of the big things that we want to do on that website, as I mentioned yet, is that I believe that charities should act as an umbrella and support other charities. So that's what we did. Mm. We've updated 71 charities on there that support children with cancer. They're all on there so a parent can find anything they need on our app. So we want it to be the one-stop shop that parent goes to. So if you do know someone that has it or you are yourself, just download our app, come on there, and you'll find like a community that you didn't know existed before, and it's safe. There's no misinformation. It's all monitored. If you don't like someone, you can report them. And it's it's just everything you need on there, really. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant, Kerry. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Um, what you've achieved in nine months is mind-blowing. And I'm just, uh, I'm glad, you know, and feel blessed that we've got this platform to get the message out there. Um, you know, as I've said to you, um, I can't, you know, can't wait to see how this grows and and at some stage, you know, help as much as I can um, in whatever way. Obviously, use my connections and network to help. And I'm hoping that people will just take inspiration from, you know, from 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 your backstory, but also, you know, from what you've achieved in the last nine months, mate. And um, you know, I'm I'm proud of you, mate. And just just yeah, just 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 well done. And um, yeah, just 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 thank you. 
thank you for the uh, opportunity to, to get the story out there. I really appreciate it. And like I say, when we had the conversation, you really helped me out in January or, or November last year, getting yeah. organised. Yeah. Um, because it's uh, yeah, sorted me out and actually put me on the right track with some organisation stuff. So if someone is listening and get yourself sorted, go and see this man. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Cheers, All right. You take care. Speak to you soon. Thanks, mate. Ooh.